Hello, and welcome to another edition of Forrester CX Cast. Each week, we speak with an analyst from the customer experience team about their research or discuss a customer experience topic in the news. My name is Deanna Laufer, along with my co-host Sam Stern. You'll hear our voice each week. Hello, and welcome to another episode of CX Cast. I am your host, Deanna Laufer, along with my co-host, Sam Stern. Hello. And today we are here to talk about some research that Sam has co-authored with another analyst at Forrester, David Johnson, called Five Secrets of Customer-Obsessed Cultures. And this is part of a series of reports that we're writing at Forrester about customer-obsessed companies and how they operate. I'm over here nodding at you, which uh, doesn't play well <laughs> on an audio uh, format. But yes, that is correct. It's a whole series of reports. Our report looks at the culture of a customer-obsessed company, but we also looked at how they recruit, so talent. We looked at their strategies, how they measure their customer experience and, and their performance and their governance, a couple other topics as well. Great. And because of this, almost every other report that comes out of us these days has the word customer obsessed in the title. So maybe we should start by defining what makes a company customer obsessed. Yes. So in the terms that I like to use, as simple as this, it's are they bringing the customer into their lens of how they make decisions, how they prioritize, where they're going to make investments. But that's my sort of simplified definition is a customer at the heart of everything they do. For customer-obsessed companies, the way we've defined it is they've got these four operating principles, that they're customer-led, insights-driven, so they don't rely on their guts. They don't try and tell customers what they want. They use customer research and data to make their decisions. They're fast. They have a bias towards speed, and they're connected. They're collaborating across the organization. And those are fine as far as they go. But I think you know what we were looking for in the whole series of reports is more evidence of, well, how does that play out in our case in the culture of an organization? What are some signs, some behaviors, some things that give you more guidance about what to do to be customer obsessed. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about the methodology that you undertook for finding out what is the difference between the cultures of companies that are customer obsessed and those that aren't. Yeah, we wanted to be disciplined about this because it's fair to say probably everyone has a few companies that come immediately to mind when they think of customer obsessed companies. Mm-hmm. We're guilty of probably referencing <laughs> the same ones over and over again, you know, USAA, Zappos, Amazon, Southwest, et cetera, et cetera. We didn't want to be that qualitative about it. So we used Forrester CX index data. We took the leaders and laggards from each industry that we measure mm-hmm. in the data. And we compared those companies to each other. And we sort of said, if you're getting good CX results, to some degree, we're going to define you as a customer-obsessed company for our purposes. That gave us about 120 or so brands. Mm -hmm. We were able to find the publicly available statements that those companies make about their cultures, about their values for 100 companies, exactly 100. And we had, I think, almost an even split between leader and laggard. I think it was 52 leaders, 48 laggards. We had their publicly available statements. We coded the words they used to come up with what are the most common statements they're making about their cultures. thought maybe this is easy. Maybe they just use very different words to describe their cultures. I will get right to the point. They do not. They use almost the identical words in describing their cultures. And this company is long gone, thankfully, but uh, probably the best example of this is how committed Enron said they were Mm -hmm. to integrity. That was something that they used a lot. And clearly they were not committed to integrity. (laughs) Not really what comes to mind when you think of Enron. No, not at all. So here's a good example, too, that from existing companies in the the same industry, Enterprise Rent-A-Car, 
CX leader in the rental car category. Yep. Thrifty car rentals, a laggard. So Enterprise highlights customer service is our way of life. And Thrifty says that one of their purpose statements is that we're passionate individual service every time. So they're using almost the exact same words in the same order that was like their first value statement to describe who they are as a company and clearly getting very different results. So words don't matter. Words don't matter. And honestly, we, we kind of going into it thought that they wouldn't make that big a difference. Yeah. So then the next thing we did is we partnered with Glassdoor, which is an employee review site. So they aggregate hundreds of thousands of reviews submitted by employees of companies about those companies as places to work. I will be honest, I was very skeptical of the validity of their data going into it because mm -hmm. anecdotally, I knew that people seem motivated to give reviews about companies when they loved them or hated them. And there didn't, it, I figured we'd have this barbell effect of, you know, lots of negative and lots of positive reviews. But when we dug into the data, it was almost exactly what you would expect for companies that are, you know, we have perception that they have good cultures, mm -hmm. were rated highly by their employees. Yep. And companies that were getting good customer experience results rated highly with their employees as well. So there's a lot of connective tissue there between what employees thought of the company and what customers thought of the company. And so that to us was telling because it seemed to be that these companies that were customer obsessed, maybe you could expand that. You could be more, um, you could define it as they were people obsessed. They, all the people in their, in, you know, in the company's orbit, they were trying to treat them well and leave them with a positive impression. So companies that do well by their customers, they do well by their employees too. And their employees show it in the ratings that they give those companies. Yeah. People will quibble with this, right? Like, well, yeah. it doesn't mean causation, right? If they have a great culture, they're going to have great experience. Or if they, they're great experience, they're going to have a great culture. Yeah, I honestly don't care which, which way. <laughs> say, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You want it to be good. But you want both yeah. to be good. I don't care yeah. which way the causality runs. The reality is you could predict companies' CX index scores from their Glassdoor employee ratings, and you could predict their yeah. Glassdoor employee ratings from their CX index scores. And what we see here is that companies have been mindful, have been planful about treating individuals that they touch well, whether they're employees or customers, that seems to carry over in, for almost every company. Okay. So now if the secret to being customer obsessed is not about the words yes. you use, it's about more, what are those secrets? Let me try to you know, make a subtle point without this being completely confusing. Yeah. The words still matter. Okay. What matters about the words is how true you are to bringing them to life. Mm -hmm. If employees believe that the words you use you're actually backing them. You're committed to them. They will then commit to them as well. And that goes a long way towards bringing a company most of the way towards being customer obsessed because the most common thing that companies said about their values, what, who they were as a company, is that they were going to treat customers really well. So if that's the most common thing you say and employees don't think that you're committed to it, it's going to be hard to deliver good customer experiences. Conversely, if that's the thing that is the most common thing you say about your company, mm -hmm. which was true of both leaders and laggards, and you are committed to it, well, then employees believe that that's something you value as an organization and that they will get rewarded for and that they need to do. Having no daylight between what you say you're about and what you do, what you actually value, goes a long way towards showing employees, demonstrating to employees that this is what the, the company values. Okay. So at Forrester, one of our key values is client, right? Yes. So it's good to have it in there, but it's not enough to have it in there. We have to show it and embody it in everything we do and the leadership does. And that way employees will really say, oh, this isn't just a word. This is something that's important. It is something we're going to live. Over and over again, we yeah. saw evidence that leaders 
wrote down words yeah. and then took really seriously those words as how they were going to operate as a company, <laughs> which sounds obvious, except that was not at all true of the laggards. The laggards seemed to write down words that were aspirational or hoped that the words would drag them along to acting in that way, but didn't seem to make as much of a commitment. So the leaders really did seem to follow through on the word. And the other thing they would do, there was a subtle distinction. These were less common value statements they made, but there was a subtle distinction where leaders would articulate their values in ways that made it clear to employees how to bring that value to life. So it wasn't, we're going to treat customers really well. It was, we're going to be responsive to customers and we're going to get back to customers and, you know, serve their needs, meet them where they are. And that's, that's not enough to go on still, Mm -hmm. but at least it's sort of saying, here's how we're going to treat customers excellently. Like, here's what we value. And they talked about, we're, we're going to, you know, be nice to each other. We're going to, you know, be honest with each other. Whereas laggards were more likely to articulate what we called a corporate value. And these were way down the list, right? These were the less common ones, but they would say, oh, you know, yep, we're going to treat customers well, and we're going to make a lot of money. Leaders didn't feel the need to say that. I mean, that's sort of implied (laughs) as a a business. Most of them are publicly traded companies. Of course, you're going to make money. Right. But you don't need to say that. And that certainly doesn't tell employees how to act. No. And if that's the thing that you're emphasizing every day and on the wall and on the poster, people are going to start trading that off, Yeah. you know, for other things. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So the leaders really did seem to try to walk the walk. And they did this through describing more human values that were easier to sort of know how to bring to life. They're obsessed with telling stories. Just think of something like Nordstrom's famous snow tire return story Mm -hmm. that's almost a shorthand. And, you know, I think it's almost been debunked. It's sort of apocryphal, but that they let a customer at their Anchorage, Alaska store return snow tires, even though they don't stock snow tires. Yeah. That reminds me of a podcast just featured L.L. Bean's famous return policy on it. And it was This American Life. Yes. And they asked L.L. Bean, aren't you worried that people are going to know that you can return your five-year-old slippers and they were like no we want we live this we embody this we want people to know this is who we are yeah that's right yeah and and i think it's the same with nordstrom is this story true or not indicates how seriously we take a generous return policy yeah and that's the point of the story and they have another story on the employee side of you know they famously have one rule in their employee handbook use Mm -hmm. good judgment in all situations The point of that is not that that's sufficient to enable employees to deliver great experiences. Far from it. The point of it is it is such a clear signal of how much they're empowering and trusting their employees. Mm -hmm. Any other secrets that you want to share? (laughs) Without going down a laundry list, as the report (laughs) title implies, there are five. I've, I've highlighted two of them. The one other I'll mention that really sticks out to me, it's been a theme of a lot of my research, is helping to ensure the emotional well-being of their employees, Mm -hmm. really trying to focus on what employees need, sort of this idea of being employee-centric as well as being customer-centric, to the extent that um, companies aren't doing this in all situations. I I think it's actually a real differentiation point. Um, In particular, we found this recently for millennials that they're looking for a company that sort of takes care of them and, you know, provides larger purpose. This is something that employers sometimes roll their eyes at. Well, we're a company. This is a job. It's not supposed to be easy. That's not the point. The point is you're trying to understand what the employee wants out of their job, what they want out of their career, Mm -hmm. and help them achieve those goals, help them get larger meaning from the job. We saw that the leaders really tried to do that, really tried to make it a place where you felt comfortable. You felt like they were looking out for you. My favorite example of this, the container store 
during the recession, 2008, 2009, double digit drop in sales mm-hmm. at their stores, trying to figure out how to cut costs because that's what they had to do to you know keep the lights on. Layoffs were on the table as one of the ways to cut costs. And they decided, you know what, we cannot lay off employees. Since we were founded, we've had this mantra, we're going to take care of our employees. So we attract great people, we'll pay them more, mm-hmm. they'll be more productive for us. If we lay them off now when things get tough, it's a betrayal of everything that we've built up with them over 20 plus years. We can do everything but that to cut costs. I mean, they froze 401k, they froze raises, delayed payments to partners, but they were able to do some of those other things that people might have grumbled about because mm-hmm. they built up this goodwill and they didn't betray it by saying, well, it's tough. Goodbye to all of you. It was, we're all in this together. We're not going to lay you off. We're not going to get rid of any of our partnerships, the external partnerships. We're going to figure out together how to cut yeah. costs. And that was really taking care of people at a time of need, right? If you laid someone off when it's double-digit unemployment, it's going to be tough for them to get another job. And then they're willing to work with you and give you extra effort. Right. And then if you embody those values, people are going to trust you when it comes to making hard decisions like cutting 401ks or something like that. They know that you still have their best interests at heart. And they know you did that as something that would save money, but that was, you know, the least bad option that you could come up with. So that sounds great. I think everyone wants to sort of work at a customer obsessed company. I guess the question is, what should a listener do who works at a company that is not customer obsessed today? Yes. And sadly, realistically, most of our listeners probably are working at companies that are not customer obsessed or not as customer obsessed as the companies we highlight in this report. Yeah. There's a few things you can do. I would look at your your Glassdoor data. Frankly, Mm -hmm. start there. A lot of people have expressed skepticism to me about the validity of that data. And I'm not here telling you it's a perfect representative (laughs) sample of your employee base. But you know what? What I came away from this research convinced of is that it is useful, directionally at least, to tell you how employees feel about your company. In the same way that most survey feedback is from customers, you don't need to take every single piece of feedback as, you know, we have to go fix this right away. But at least you're listening and you're hearing what the problems are. And I think it's a really good nuance there, which is, don't just go and try and fix, you know, the low scores on your glass door ranking. Right. Use that as a sort of general idea of how strong or not your culture is. And I would go do much more in-depth research, if you haven't already, with employees, mm-hmm. uh, conversations, qualitative research, to dig into what is keeping them from being truly engaged, truly passionate about the work. I think that's a really good starting point. That will give you a lot of ideas, a long list of things to probably address at your company. The other thing I would do, and and to me this is a bit of a um, fight or flight answer question that you'd be answering, is Mm -hmm. test whether your executives, assuming our listeners are not the executives at their company, test whether you think they can be this committed to living their values. Because if the leaders aren't committed, it's just not going to happen at your company. That's, you know, your sign to go find one of these customer obsessed <laughs> companies or a company that seems well on its way. If you think that there's a willingness there and they're looking for good ideas about how to move the company in this direction, then that's great. You, you could be the person that could bring them some of these ideas or some of these ways to find out how to fix the culture. But I don't think you should spend a lot of time and effort trying to convince leaders if they're not ready to be convinced because they will be a barrier to you helping to change the culture. Yeah. And you, of course, can't really change the culture without the buy-in of your leaders. No, it yeah. can't. It doesn't happen. Well, 
I hate to end on such a negative <laughs> note, but <laughs> hopefully you don't work in one of those companies. And um, if you do want to learn a little bit and start changing your culture, check out the report that we talked about in today's podcast, Five Secrets of Customer Obsessed Cultures. And Sam, you'll be sharing this research live at Forrester CX events coming this fall, right? Yes, that's right. So we've got our San Francisco Customer Experience Forum in October and our European Customer Experience Forum in November in London. So San Francisco, October 20th, 21st, London, uh, November 15th and 16th. I will be speaking at both of those events, sharing some of this data, sharing the best practices that we've seen from the customer-obsessed companies about how they foster customer obsession in their organizational cultures. Yeah, and even more examples than are in the report here or that we've talked about in the podcast today, right? Yeah, that's right. So if any of our European listeners, we're going to have European data for the London conference, San Francisco. I'm hoping to have a few new examples that aren't in this research. Great. So if listeners are um, interested in learning more about those forums, they can check them out on forester.com. And thanks for joining us today. We'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's CXCast. We'll post links to the reports we mentioned in this episode in the podcast show notes. For questions or suggestions, please contact me at d-l-a-u-f-e-r at forrester.com. And remember, your customer's perception is your CX reality. <laughs> <laughs>